0: Hey folks, this is Kevin on this week's episode of risk. You'll hear Bob Brader.
1: I took that knife to kill the creature in white. And I remember thinking tonight, that's exactly what I'm going to do.
0: That and more. But before that, I want to talk to you about a podcast that's created by a good friend of mine. Hedonist is the podcast about the sex party revolution. Reporter and host Grant Irving spent months hearing about the different facets and factions of the sex party world. People who all envision a future where sex parties make for a safer and more loving world there's only a couple of issues when sex combines with capitalism and human complexity makes things a little tricky sometimes subscribe to hedonist on iTunes and hear about the sex party revolution that just may be coming to a warehouse or mansion near you hedonist is a brick house projects podcast and it's supported by field the dating app for couples or singles who are more than a little open-minded and zero is a porn site run by the porn star Stoya, so you know this podcast is the real deal. That's Hedonist, the podcast about the sex party revolution. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Just search for H-E-D-O-N-I-S-T. Also, we now have 1,000 pre-orders for the Risk book. That is is incredible and amazing and wonderful. However, (laughs) we have been told repeatedly that we need at least 2,000 pre-orders of the Risk book before July 17th, 2018 in order to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list, which would really profoundly and hugely help the book reach a wider audience. So (laughs) in the next 15 days, we're hoping to have as many pre-orders as we possibly can to double the amount that we've gotten so far. If you have not pre-ordered yet, oh my gosh. Pre-order and pre-order again, my friends. Get yourself several copies. Look, there's the audiobook, there's the ebook, and there's the paperback version. They are all available wherever you get your books. Just go to theriskbook.com. Another option is to text to the number 900 the word RISK. You can go to Amazon, whatever, just look for the risk book. It's out there Buy yourself, uh, several copies for your friends, encourage friends, you know, poke them if, th- if they've been uh, like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to get that too. And now is the time. They say that in marketing, if you say something to someone 16 or 17 times, it'll finally get to them. So maybe this is the 17th time you're hearing me talk about this. It's certainly much more than the 17th time I have talked about it. Yes, we need as many pre-orders as we possibly can on the book. Listen, I was reading excerpts from the book in front of our audience here in New York City just uh, several nights ago. And oh my gosh, people were just loving it. It was so cool to just read random paragraphs out loud and have people just be so psyched. You really can open to any chapter in the book and immediately be immersed in either the most shocking or the most gorgeous, like tear jerking or the most like hilarious. Like there is so much amazing storytelling in this book. It's definitely, A you can't put it down sort of book. Perfect to have in the bathroom or in the waiting room of your office, or, you know, I mean, it's just one of those books that you can easily pick up, take to the beach to read. It's very, very entertaining and readable and just chock full of fantastic stuff. So, Go get the risk book and have your friends get it. It's loaded with famous people in it. Dan Savage, Aisha Tyler, Mark Maron, AJ Jacobs, T.S. Madison, Jonah Ray, Lily Taylor. It, I'm in it, for Christ's sake. I, even me. So, yes, theriskbook.com or text to 900, 900 the word risk, and get that pre-ordering happening and start poking all your friends and family to start pre-ordering their own and get gifts of it <laughs> and let us know that you you got it so i can sing your name at the end of the episode you can email me at kevin at and i'll sing your name at the end of the episode if you prove that you bought it that is all except to say now here's the show whoa Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Booker T, and the MGs behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode, Spitting in the Face of the Devil. This is an extraordinary story that is just one just one story for this entire episode shared by Bob Brader now Bob has a solo show also called spitting in the face of the devil it's a good deal longer than this version of the story we're putting on the show here and he's working on a memoir that is going to be even longer than the solo show so this is one of those life experiences where there is a lot to unpack We can't tell the whole story here on Risk, but (laughs) goddamn, the version we are presenting here today is really quite something. I hope it encourages you to check out this extraordinary work that Bob is doing, sharing his story in various ways. You really should look for his memoir when it comes out. And look for his solo show if you ever get a chance to see it. Uh, I saw it live and he does a q and a afterwards and it 's extraordinary in fact we 're going to do a q and A with Bob in our patreon you know uh, on Patreon, we do all this bonus content. I want to do a q and a with Bob about this story because there 's just so much to it, and I think it would be really interesting to like just check in with him after sharing this massive story on the show today. I, I have to warn you. Uh, There are issues with child abuse that come up in the story. So something to be aware of in the listening experience. It gets pretty intense. There's some phenomenal editing of this story that was done by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And if you want to find Bob Brader, you should look him up at BobBrader.com. So without further ado, here is Bob Brader now with a story we call Spitting in the Face of the Devil.
1: I was at work one day, I was working as a temp, and my cousin called me, my cousin April, on my father's side. She said, "Uh, I have some really bad news. Your father died. And I was like, yeah? I felt nothing. It was a total numbness. I'm kind of waiting for it to hit me, you know, and and, and that's that was kind of my thought. And it's like pretty soon I'm going to be on the floor crying, and and it's going to hit me, and I'm, I'm I'm because this is my father. I got home and I called my sister, and I said, Tammy, uh, look, I have something I have to tell you. Um, dad died, and she said, Wow, I I don't really feel anything about that and I was like I know I don't understand that I was like I, I, I'm supposed to feel something aren't I Aren't I supposed to feel something about that and she was like yeah I know but I, I don't either and then I called my mom and I said mom and dad died and she was like oh she started crying and I felt for my mom but I didn't feel anything for him I didn't go to the funeral at all My mom and sister went and and they both told me that they had to go to the viewing just because they wanted to make sure that he was dead. But I I, I had said goodbye to him so many years ago and in my opinion, I kind of honored him by not going. I was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, we um, moved to Whitehall, Pennsylvania. It's all in the the same kind of general area. It's a very small town. Everybody kind of knew everybody's business. My dad was like Tony Soprano. He He was big like Tony Soprano. One minute, he was joking and having a good time and laughing with you. And the next minute, he was angry and furious. And the rage would just come right out of him. I remember one time I was playing outside and I was playing in water and stuff like that. And he he told me that I needed to stop playing in the water. And then I, I just plopped into the water and I was laughing. And he looked at me and he laughed. But then he something happened and he got really angry. And he came over and was like, what are you doing? Why are you getting all wet? What is going on? And I got up and I... I I thought we were playing and I started running around the lawn and he started running after me and then he grabbed me he yanked my pants down and spanked me right there on the lawn really really hard and then I was just laying on the lawn and, and and crying my eyes out and this was on a beautiful summer day in front of all the neighbors because my father never cared I mean when that anger would come he would just, it would just come out. And I was usually the brunt of that anger. When I was about uh, first grade, I think, it was probably around then, I, I started wetting the bed. My mom decided, you know, it was, it was time to take me to the doctor after it started happening more regularly. And the doctor didn't even examine me. He just, he just looked at my mom and said, well, there's two reasons for your son's bedwetting. I see this all the time. It's either because he's too afraid to get out of bed, uh, so you should probably put a nightlight in his room, or he's too lazy to get out of bed. And my father, after hearing that, kind of decided that this was not going to happen again. So he started a, a morning ritual. He would get up around 5.30 in the morning and he would come in to my room to see if I was wet. He'd leave my light off so I didn't wake up. He would shower. He would get dressed and and ready to go. If I was wet, he would come into my room. He would use the shower time and the getting dressed time in order to build his anger because when he came in, he was furious. He would take off his belt and fold it in half. He would turn on my light And he'd proceed to wake me by smacking me on the lower back, the ass, and the lower leg. He would hold me down by placing his hand on my back or the back of my neck, kind of forcing my face into the pillow. Uh, He would yell, telling me how lazy I am and, and asking me if I enjoyed sleeping in piss. And then he would leave for work. I used to go to sleep at night and, like, pray that I would wake up dry and wondering why I couldn't stop it. And this went on for, for years and years. Uh, sometimes the, the welts on my ass would bleed. I remember being in fourth grade once and not being able to really sit down. I, I stood by my desk. We were doing something in class and the teacher was like, well, please sit down. And I was like, um, I will, I will in a minute. And I, I just stood there because it hurt too much to sit. I specifically remember one incident where my father used to check to see if I was wet by putting his hand directly under my crotch, under my groin. And I remember kind of waking up and feeling this hand on me. And then the hand immediately pulling away. And I was like, oh, I, I think my dad just checked to see if I was wet. And then I realized I was wet. And my whole entire body froze because I knew exactly what was coming. I remember thinking, "If maybe if I can get up, I can run into my mom's room and maybe I won't get hit. And I could hear him taking a shower. I I could feel my muscles aching to move and couldn't. He came into the room and I, I heard his belt whip from around his waist and I felt that first whack. It was like, A flash I I was then able to move everything and everything came to life uh, at that one moment and I was able to scream and cry and kind of let it all out I remember feeling like I deserved it absolutely believing it was my fault my grandparents uh, my my mem and pap I remember them uh, a couple times uh, seeing the welts and uh, constantly saying you know the next time this happens I'm gonna have a talk with your father." If anyone ever said anything to him about the abuse or anything like that, he would always say, "'Don't tell me how to raise my kids. I don't tell you how to raise your kids. Don't tell me how to raise my kids.'" And everybody let it go. And my mom was so petrified of my father my grandfather was a drinker and he was a bit abusive to my uncle and they had a a tumultuous relationship when they were growing up so when my father would do the things that he did she just believed that that is the way fathers and sons are my mom quit school in the eighth grade and started working so my mom didn't have a a lot of education but I think one of the reasons why I am still alive today is because of her love and support. She was the light. Whenever these bouts of of anger and rage would happen, my mom would come in and she would be there for me and she would care for me and, and hold me. It was us together. It was never like the three of us as a family unit. It was my mom and I surviving with him. My mom is the one who actually saved me from the ritualistic beatings. When my father oversleeps for work and I'm wet in the morning, I won't get a beating then. After he gets home from work, then I'll get beat. So it would be like all day you're waiting and anticipating the fact that you knew you were wet that morning and you know what's coming as soon as you get home. I knew that that's what was happening on that particular day. So after dinner, he said, I know you were wet this morning. And he took off his belt and my mom jumped in front of me. And she was like, uh, I'm taking him to see a doctor. I'm taking him to see a real doctor. I want to get this straightened out. I want to find out if he has a, a real problem or not. And my father, <laughs> who hates when anyone stood up to him in any way, shape, or form, let it go because he had to get ready to go. He's, he goes to bingo like three, four times a week, and uh, it was a bingo night for him, and he dropped it because he was absolutely sure that we were going to go to this doctor and that we were going to find out that there was nothing wrong with me and that I was just lazy. So I went to this doctor. They brought out these little instruments. They were like candy canes. They were all these different sizes. He came in. He was just this big guy. And he put lubricant all over the head of my penis and he took one of those small little candy canes and he plunged it inside my penis. And I remember screaming so loudly. Uh, The people in the parking lot outside, I am quite positive, heard me. But he believed that I had an infection in there, which was causing my tubes to open and close at random times. So they put me on antibiotics and he told me I had to come in and see him every two weeks in order for everything to stay open. I mean, I wasn't thrilled about going to see him every two weeks, but at least I started realizing it wasn't my fault. And my father was angry at the fact that there was something wrong with me because he hated to be wrong, and he was so annoyed that... A, that first doctor lied to him, uh, and B, that there was something wrong with me, and I didn't really tell anybody because that was my fault. I should have been more expressive about the fact that there was something wrong with me. Later on, we were playing cards over— my family used to get together a lot and play cards over at his brother's place. My father told them that he was the one who took me to the doctor and that he was there while they did this horrible thing to his son— and, and how terrible it was, but how he stood by me and was there for me. He got like this little thrill from all of these little lies that he told all of these different people. But I, I mean, if you say anything like, well, that never happened. I mean, that, that's like asking for it. You just don't do that. When I was in fourth grade, I found out about this um, spring fling. Uh, which was a talent show. My fourth grade teacher said to me, well, you should go and you should do it. Uh, and I was like, why? What, 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 what would I do? And she was like, well, you do your impressions. I used to do impressions of different people. I don't even consider it like a, a talent. It was it was just something that I could do. I, I went home and I, you know, I, I talked to my mom about it and she was like, well, you should do that. I mean, why not? I always think your stuff is funny, so go, go do it. So I ran up and and I started practicing and started working on some kind of routine that I would put together. While I was doing that, my father came up into my room. There were no locked doors in my household. Doors always had to be left open. He was like, what are you doing? I hope that when you get up there on stage that uh, you're better than what you were just doing there because that was terrible. You were really terrible. You're not really gonna do this, are you? You're going to make a fool out of yourself if you go up there and do that. Just forget about Don't do it, because you're, you're really bad. I was, I was like, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I, I, I shouldn't. I went to school the next day, and through encouragement and everything like that, I, I put my name on the list, and I was practicing again. And he came in, and he was like, I was listening to it, and I was embarrassed for you. People are going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you. Don't do it. The next day, I was, I was like, maybe I should take my name off the list. I'm, I, I shouldn't do this because I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to embarrass my family. When I got down towards the gym, there was this gigantic sign and everybody's name listed. And mine was the last name on it. And I was like, oh, my God, how can I back out now? I mean, there's my name in big letters. I, I can't back out of it. I was so freaked out. I ran home to my mom and... Uh, after school that day and I, I just started bawling and I was like I'm not good enough and people are going to mock me and make fun of me and, and my mom just looked at me and she was like Bobby what are you talking about she's like I, I've always been so proud of what you do you can't worry about the people who aren't going to like what you do you have to do it for the people that are going to love what you can do and then, then the show was huge I mean The auditorium was packed. I had never seen it so full. And I started to feel excited about going out there. And then they called my name and I went out and they started laughing at what I was doing. I cannot describe the high that that was. (laughs) I'd never had people like, like a large group of people like hearing that big a laugh before and being totally intoxicated by it. And I remember being all, almost all the way through the routine, and I looked down at my mom, and, and she gave me a, a big thumbs-up sign. That right there was like everything. I finished my routine, and the audience was like cheering and cheering. And I had friends of mine who were up in the balcony, and they stood up, and they started stomping their feet, and they were chanting my name. And it was, it was such a magical moment for me. I knew right then that being an actor is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I also knew that my father was wrong. What I did was good. People did appreciate it. But my father also had a jealousy streak. He hated any kind of attention that anybody would get other than him. So shortly after the show, I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth and, and he came by and told me I wasn't brushing properly. And he came behind me and he grabbed my forehead, pulled my head back, and he scrubbed my teeth and gums with my toothbrush. Uh, My gums bled for three days. I remember not being able to eat anything, especially anything with like salt or anything like that for a few days because it just burned. But he would do things like that uh, whenever he was jealous. I had three dogs growing up at, at different times. Blackjack was my mom's dog, she loved that dog. And after a little while, my father was jealous of the dog. So he took the dog, put it in his car, took it out on the freeway and let it go. He did the same thing with Blackjack too. We had it for a little while, and uh, then he would feel that people were paying too much attention to the dog and not enough to him. So he took it out on the highway and let it go. And he did the same thing with Pal. I didn't want to be responsible for another animal being left out on the, on the highway, so we stopped getting pets after that. The total opposite story of that is when my sister was born, my father told my mother, when she found out she was pregnant, my father told her to get rid of the baby. He was like, you are not having this child. If you have it, I'm leaving. And my mom was totally distraught. She had no idea what to do. And she came to me and she was like, maybe your father and I should split up. And maybe this is the best thing. I was spending a lot of time over at my grandparents' place. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, well, if your parents get divorced, you you realize they're going to send you away. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, well, that's what happens to children whose parents get divorced and that they send them away. And I was petrified. I was I was like I don't want to leave my family and she was like, "Well, then I hope they don't get divorced." And when my mom asked me about it again, I was like, "I don't want to leave. Please, let's let's work this out." Cuz I was totally afraid that I'd be taken away from my mom. And and my mom was, you know, kind of my world. So my mom had a dream that she gave birth to a little girl and named her Tammy Marie Braider. She felt that this birth was um A gift, a gift from God. So there was no way she was going to have an abortion. And my father was furious and he yelled and screamed, but nothing was ever done. And then my sister was born. She was so adorable. I was in love with this little baby that was then held in my arms at 10 years old. The only thing I thought the whole entire time I was holding her was, I will never let him hurt her the way that he hurts me. I will do everything I can to prevent that. My sister and my father had the complete opposite relationship of him and I. This baby that he fought so hard to get rid of became the apple of his eye. I mean, he loved her doted on her, did everything that he could for her. It was a total and complete reversal. And I'm not sure why, and I didn't even really care because my sister was being taken care of and that was the most important thing. I was in fifth grade. And <laughs> Mrs. Shearer was having this, what she called a uh, winter celebration show. And, and we were all dressed in uh, leather jackets and white t-shirts and jeans. And we were singing Grease songs and everything like that. You know, it's just like all these 50s songs. Towards the end of the presentation, Mrs. Shearer said, I want to introduce one of my kids who has made me laugh like a hundred times and he has no idea I'm gonna do this. Bob, come on up here and do some of your act. I nearly fell on the floor, I was so nervous. And I remember shaking a little bit and I walked up front and I started doing my routine like I had at the Spring Fling. And again, people were laughing and that, oh, that euphoria of hearing those laughs was so intoxicating and wonderful. The only major difference that night was that I saw my father standing at the back of the room. He wasn't really laughing. Uh, he had his arms folded, and he was standing around watching everyone else react to what I was doing. When I got home that night, my father looked at me and said, You know what? I, I, I know you're all happy, and, and you think you did a good job, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Something that I see that no one wants to do. You were terrible. You just don't have what it takes. And he he looked at me right in the eye and he said, I was hoping to see something in you that I could be proud of. Instead, I saw you jumping around like a goofball. (laughs) Way to go. And you know, I, 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 I couldn't help but think that maybe he was right. Maybe it wasn't that good. Maybe people were laughing at me instead of with me. And so uh, I kind of didn't want to uh, do my impressions like that again. I was in fifth grade when I met David. I remember him being one of the first people I ever saw with feathered hair, wore like all of the new kind of clothing, listened to all the new music, and I liked him. I invited him over to my place for dinner, and I never really did that ever. I knew that when people met my father, that they loved him. And because of that, I never really wanted to bring people around him, because I got tired of people saying, boy, I wish my father was your father. And I was like, what? Well, you really have no idea what he's like. Everybody thought that this guy that they saw who was so funny and personable when he was out with other people, that that's who he really was. I was also like a really neat kid. I was very meticulous about how everything was in my room. When people came over, sometimes they would touch things and move things and then things wouldn't be in their place and I didn't like that. So in order for me to bring someone over, was it was a big deal to me. When David came over for dinner... David and my father were like instantly friends. See, David was growing up without a father. And my dad grew up without a father. And I think he wanted to be there for David in a way that, that no one was ever there for my father. And they started doing things together. They would go fishing. I have no interest in fishing, uh, so I, I didn't go. But my father loved to fish, so him and David went together. They went everywhere together. He got interested in how David was doing in school. I didn't really care about this extra attention that David was getting because my experience with my father was when he was spending time with something else, that's good time. (laughs) You know, he left me alone and I, I liked that. People used to think that I was David and they used to call David his son. And I was quite content not to be a part of that whole entire thing. David was sleeping over one night and uh, I was about half asleep and I heard my door creak open and, and I heard someone walking up my stairs and I remember opening my eyes just a little bit and I I saw this thing standing at the top of my stairs. It was like it glowed white and I remember thinking it is this creature and it's It's going to attack me. You you know, you have that half-sleep logic going on, that this is something that is foreign and I don't know what it is, but it's obviously here to hurt me. My whole body stiffened. I I just stayed frozen for a very long time. And when I opened my eyes again, it was gone. The next night, I, I went downstairs and I took a knife from the kitchen and I put it under my pillow. I remember thinking that, okay, if the creature in white comes again, I can grab the knife under the pillow and I can get him. David and I were together and my family was going out one night and David said to me, Let's go break into the soda machine at the Caddy Playground. And I was like, oh, why do you want to do, what, what are you talking about? And he was like, I just, I just want to do something like that. Let, let's do it. And I don't know why, because something like that is, is so far out of character for, for me, especially at that time. I mean, I used to get stomach pains when I would even think about doing something that wasn't totally and completely correct. And I was like, oh, all right, sure. So we went down to the playground and David was trying to break into the machine and, and, and there was this gigantic light that was over the soda machine. I remember someone yelling at me from out in the darkness. They were like, hey, Brader, is that you? And I, I couldn't really see who it was. And I was like, yeah, what? <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's how smart I was about doing these kinds of things. And so I, I, I walked back over and I helped him rip it open. We got three dollars and all the sodas we could carry, actually. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, uh, I was nervous, uh, but not half as nervous as a few days later when uh, the police called my house and they were like, "You have to come down and make a, a statement, and you have to bring one of your parents down." And I was like, "You can't do this to me! Like, I can't tell my parents. Look, like, you don't, you don't know what'll happen to me. Look, I, I can't do it." And he was like, well, you should have thought about that before you committed a crime. Now you come down here and make a statement. And then uh, my father came home and I told him what happened and he said nothing to me, he just gave me that look of you are in so much trouble. And we went down to the police precinct. And the cop came in, he opened this, file and he sat down and he started reading me my rights and I remember sitting there shaking the cops started asking me all these questions and then I couldn't really answer. I was so petrified. And then I remember my father smacked me in the back of the head and he was like, stop it. You better start talking right now. I remember thinking like, how could my father be angry with me for, for this? He told me all of these stories that he did when he was a kid. I mean, he used to tie cats' tails together and throw them over clothing lines so that the two cats would kind of rip each other apart. He used to tie cat's legs together and throw them out of apartment buildings. I remember once he was running away from his mom, because my dad's mom used to discipline the kids by taking an extension cord and folding it in half, and she would beat them with an extension cord. And I remember him telling me how he got away from her one night by sleeping in a tree, and he slept there all night. And he also told me about how once there was this girl who told on him and one of his brothers and that they came up on this girl and my father held her down and his brother ripped off her clothing and they tied her to a tree. And they just stood there and then they watched her for hours. And when they let her go, my father walked over to her and said, "Um, I want you to remember, this time we didn't rape you. Now, if you tell on us, about this or anything else. Next time, you won't be so lucky. I told the cop everything, except for the the screwdriver part. I kind of left that out because I thought that was really incriminating. And then the, the, the cop was like, what about the screwdriver? And as soon as he said that, I was struck by two things. One was the fact that That person who saw me out in the darkness was an eyewitness, and he told the cop everything. And the other was my father's backhand, because he smacked me right in the face. I remember falling backwards and hitting my head on the floor, actually. And then my father grabbed the chair, and then he grabbed me, and he threw me into the chair. And he said, you had better start telling the truth, or I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And my, my lip started bleeding, and the cop just looked at me with this look of please help me, and then I can help you, kind of look. And then looked over at this huge cross on his wall, and he was like, do you believe in God? Because your your statement that you're making is an oath to God. Now, you can lie to me or your father, but do you really want to lie to God? <laughs> and and I, I remember thinking at that time that God doesn't care about me. I mean, in this situation, then God doesn't care about me. But just to get it over with, I I started crying, and I told the cop I was sorry, and and of course I believe in God, and 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 this is all just a horrible thing that happened, and and if I had to do it all over again, I never would have went to the playground that night. Then the cop finished my statement. And he had me sign it, and um, he gave me a, a tissue to wipe the blood off my neck and lip. And then he told my father that the people who owned the soda machine were never going to press charges and that my file that they had on me would be buried by the time I was 17. And that they just wanted to teach David and I a lesson that we would never forget. And I, I, when I got home, I was just so relieved to have it all over. I mean, you know, the fat lip, that was, that was nothing. I, I had tons of those in the past and I ran into the house and I told my mom everything that happened. And she looked at me with an expression I had never seen before. She looked me straight in the eye and she said, I'm very disappointed in you. Then she turned away from me and she went over and started doing the dishes. It was the worst thing my mother ever said to me. I let down the only person that was ever really there for me. The only person that ever really cared for me. I cried myself to sleep that night and I, I absolutely made a vow that I would never, ever do anything like that ever again. And David and I didn't hang out after that. I found out a few weeks later that his mom and he were moving to Phillipsburg, New Jersey. So I, I, I ran down to his place to try and meet him before he left. And, and his mom answered the door and she said, David is not allowed to hang out with you or your family anymore. I was like, I'm, I'm so sorry about what happened with the soda machine. And I, it was my fault. I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, why are you moving? And she said, ask your family fucking father. And she went back inside the house and slammed the door. I was so confused why she would be angry with my dad. I mean, my dad treated David like a king, like his son. I just figured that maybe she was jealous. David paid a lot of attention to my father, and it was probably wasn't spending enough time with his mother, and she was totally jealous about that. And and that's, that's where my mind went, and that's where it stayed, and I forgot about it. But my closest friend was Richard. When David stopped hanging out at my place, I met Richard and Richard and I became really close friends. (laughs) Richard and I talked about everything. Uh, He was the first person I ever really had that kind of relationship with, especially a guy, because growing up the way I did, men I never really trusted a whole lot. I was always much closer with women uh, and much friendlier with women. But Richard was different. I could open up to him and talk to him, and I did. I mean, we talked about everything. I mean, from the school to the girls we were dating and to masturbation and how many times we did it that day, and and going to the mall together because you know I grew up in a small town. That's what we did. We we hung out at the mall, and we would go to the mall like on a Saturday morning and be there all day and just walk around the mall, and he would sleep over uh, a lot. So when Richard left my house one day, and my father turned to me and said, I'm surprised you still hang out with that kid. And I was like, Richard, what are you talking about? He's my best friend, we do everything together. And he's like, oh see, you don't know. And I was like, what do you mean I don't know? And he was like, Richard's gay. And I was like, what what are you talking about? And he was like, well, he's gay, fag, whatever you want to call it, he likes guys. And I was like, "Well, well, What? How do you know? And he was like, Richard told me that he was gay. He confided in me because I'm like a father figure. You know, I I knew guys like that when I was in the Marine Corps. And it's like, man, the stuff we used to do to them. Like short sheet their beds or sometimes we'd put some boots in a duffel bag and while they were sleeping, we'd whack the shit out of them. He was like, so you see, I knew even before he told me. I remember him looking at me, very earnest and very determined. And he was like, I don't give a fuck what you do. But if you hang out with a fag, people are going to think you're a fag. So you better not hang out with him anymore because people are going to start calling you names and they're going to start picking on you more than they do. So you better just leave him alone. None of this made sense to me. I mean, I knew Richard. And, and we talked about everything. So I was like, <laughs> it, I, it doesn't make any sense. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I can't understand it. And he was like, well, you know, Richard's father is a drunk and he doesn't talk to him much. And, and Richard looks to me as a father figure, just like David did. And I I I couldn't hardly sleep that night. It, none of it computed. I, it just... If Richard was gay, he knew that it wouldn't affect me in any way. I mean, I was friends with i friends that were gay. I mean, I was in theater. You know, I mean, it, it didn't bother me at all. So why would he keep it from me? I, I just couldn't understand that. And Richard didn't hang out with my father. He didn't go places with my father. I mean, they talked a little bit because uh Richard's dad was an alcoholic and and wasn't really there for him, and my father, in his own way, tried to be there for Richard, but Richard was always my friend you know it was it was very different than david david was David was always my father's friend, you know that shift was always present almost from the first time that David came over and we had dinner and and David was like bang they they were like talking and they were they were like connected but Richard never and and they never had any kind of special connection they never went anywhere together they never went fishing by themselves together now I was never going to stop being friends with Richard that just wasn't going to happen but I had to find out why he would tell my father (laughs) that he was gay and not tell me so All day long at school, I was trying to figure out how to talk to Richard, how to have that conversation. So finally, we were over at my house, and we were in the kitchen, and I just blurted it out. And I was like, look, Richard, I I have something I have to ask you, and I want you to be honest with me. Last night, uh, my father, (laughs) of all people, uh, told me that you were gay. Look, hey. You you know I don't care about any of that. I mean, it has no bearing on our friendship. I mean, what I really can't understand is how you could tell him and not me. So if this is true, why would you keep it a secret from me? Richard was stunned. And he sat down in a chair and he said, Your father told you? And I said, Yeah. And he said, all right, I'm going to tell you everything. Richard started telling me about my father. Richard was about 15 at this time. He said, I've always been attracted to men. And so is your father. He said, that son of a bitch taught me all about being gay and about how to cope with it and how to deal with it. He said that my father, when he was younger, was in the Marine Corps, and when he was in the Marine Corps, he met a man, and they fell very much in love. They were supposed to hop a train and take off together, but the young man never showed up, and my father waited at the station for him for two days. And then he went back home, and he was devastated, and uh, he, he didn't see anyone for a few years, and his family started asking him questions. Why aren't you dating? Why aren't you seeing anyone? And that's when he met my mom. They started dating and she became pregnant and was forced by her family and his to get married. He kind of always felt trapped. And then Richard told me about how my father found ways to get around that. He used to what Richard called cruising the mall. Richard said, it is so easy to do I mean, you're, you're walking down the mall, you see a cute guy, you make eye contact. If he checks you out, you go into the bathroom and he gets you off or you get him off. He said, I did it a bunch of times when we were hanging out. I was surprised you never asked me why I kept disappearing. I mean, he, he also took Richard to the bookstores in Allentown and and showed him about glory holes. And Richard was like, there is this hole there and you put your dick in it somebody gets you off. It's amazing. And he was telling me all of this like it was nothing. Like he was talking about a movie he had just seen or something like that. And, and I was trying to piece all of this together. I mean, this was rattling around in my brain and, and some things were starting to make sense, uh, but I was still kind of confused about it. He started telling me about the fact that David and my father, in his words, were lovers. That they used to run off all the time and have sex. That David was never really my friend. He only hung out with me to be closer to my father and that David really actually hated me because whenever I was around, he couldn't be as close to my father as he wanted to be. I was totally shocked. And Richard also started telling me about the fact that he had sex with my father. And he started telling me about the fact that my father would pay him for sex Richard said to me, didn't you think it was weird that sometimes you'd be like, hey, let's go to bingo. And I'd say, well, I can't go. I don't have any money. But then 20 minutes later, I'd amazingly have $40 in my pocket. He was like, you know, sometimes your father would come up to your bedroom and and get me while I was sleeping. And we'd go down to the living room and have sex. He said he did the same thing with David. And then he looked at me and said, "I, I know why your father told you. He said because I told him I was never going to fuck him again no matter how much he paid me. And he started crying and he he looked at me and he said, "You know, I feel better having told you about all of this. I I really hated keeping it a secret. But I don't think we should hang out anymore." And Richard ran out of my house. And I was I was standing there trying to piece everything together and and you know, there was a part of me that was like, "You know, uh, is all of this true? I mean, you know, and I, I trusted Richard more than I did my father, but it also seemed to me like tit for tat. You know, he said, you were gay, you have to say he's gay. I, I went upstairs and I collapsed on my bed and trying to piece everything together. and And I put my hand under my pillow and I found that knife. The knife that I had put there in order to kill the creature in white. It was a a four-inch steak knife with serrated edges and a a wooden handle. I remember thinking back about the creature in white and my father's favorite nighttime wear being a a white T-shirt tucked into his white Fruit of the Loom underwear. And I was like, oh my God, my father is the creature in white. And rage filled every cell in my body. And I, I, I began biting my tongue. I remember just laying on my bed, biting my tongue. It was a, a habit I picked up from my grandfather and kind of a way of dealing with, with rage and frustration. And the more I looked at that knife, the angrier I got. I took that knife to kill the creature in white and I remember thinking, tonight, that's exactly what I'm going to do. My mind was made up. Dinner was amazingly quiet that night. I remember looking at him and just thinking about watching him die. I was really hoping he would beg me for his life as I cut him. I went to bed early that night. I sat in the dark with the knife in my hand. The whole time, all I kept thinking about were the times that he beat me. The times he lied to me. The times he smacked me around for not showing him the proper respect. The time he brushed my teeth for me, I was gonna stab him in the fucking throat. I remember thinking, Lie to me now, fucker. Hit me now, you prick. I was walking down my stairs, I was clutching the knife, and I was smiling. (laughs) I remember (laughs) I was finally gonna get even with him for everything he ever did to me. As I turned the corner, I could hear him snoring. My parents' bedroom door is always open. He sleeps closest to the door. I walked through the door, I raised the knife. I was ready. I was poised and ready. And just then my mother moved. She didn't wake. She only shifted in her sleep. But it, it was enough for me to think about her for just a split second. How would she feel with her husband dead and her son in prison? I thought about how hurt she would be how distraught she would be. And I went back downstairs and put the knife back in the drawer and went back up to my room. I couldn't kill him. And he will never know how close he came to being dead. After that... uh, I tried to find proof that he was having sex with men and boys. And I I, I tried to find out myself. I followed him around the mall. (laughs) Richard told me where to go and who to see and what to say. But I couldn't find anything out. He was really super smart. Uh, He had been hiding everything for so long that he was just uncatchable in that way at least for me and and my 15, 16-year-old self. Um, so I decided that I wanted to tell my mom. I was like, you know, if there's anyone who can get to the bottom of it, maybe she can. Even if we don't tell him, at least she'll know what I'm dealing with. It was two months from the time that, that Richard told me everything to the time that I sat my mom down and had one of the hardest conversations I think I've ever had in my whole life. It was on my father's bingo night and he had left and I I decided that at the the last minute I, I felt that I would only tell her if she no longer loved him. They were fighting and I was like, oh, if she doesn't love him anymore, I can tell her this and then I won't be the one who breaks up their marriage or whatever is going to happen after this information comes out. So my father left and I looked at my mom and I was like, um, you know, mom, uh... I want you to promise me something. Um, when you no longer love Dad, I want you to let me know because I have something I want to tell you. But I don't want to tell you unless you no longer love him. And she <laughs> she looked at me so confused, and she was like, "What are you talking about?" And I was like, "I I I have something to tell you, but I don't know how to tell you." And she was like, "Just tell me. Why why can't you tell me?" And I was like, "Cause I I don't want to hurt you." And and you know what? I'm not even sure anything I know is true. I, I have no proof to back anything up, so let's just forget about it. <laughs> Unless you no longer love him, and then I can tell you. And she just looked at me and she said, Whatever is on your mind, you can tell me. And I said, Well, um, I think that Dad is gay. And she looked at me so confused, and she said, Well... What's gay? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, my mom had no idea. I mean, she came from an overprotective family to a husband who kept her in the dark about everything. I mean, I mean, he made sure of that. She had no idea about any kind of alternative lifestyle because no one ever talked to her about it. I mean, she came from a time where where no one ever talked about being gay. And, And if it came up at all, it was a foreign and mysterious thing that only happened in other people's families. And I was like, uh, um, I think that dad likes to sleep with guys uh, because Richard told me that dad's gay. And she was like, well, how would Richard know such a thing? And I said, because Richard's gay. Richard had sex with dad. And I said, Richard also told me that dad had sex with David. You know, I I think that's why David and his mom moved away. I think David's mom found out about dad and David. I tried to be as tender as I could, but as, as straightforward as I could. She was like, how can you say such a thing? She was like, I know you and your father don't get along, but how can you say such a thing about him? And I said, look, Mom, trust me, I, I am not making this stuff up. I mean, and, and, and some things do add up. Richard didn't know David, yet he knows all about their relationship. I mean, he had to hear that from somebody. And then I told my mom something that, jumped into my head that I had totally forgotten all about. I said once I was sitting on the arm of dad's chair and and we, we were goofing around and he grabbed me and I jumped off his chair really quickly and he said he was sorry but it was way too weird for me to ever sit on the arm of his chair with him again and I never even pieced that together until Richard started telling me about him and my mom looked at me and she was like Well, I want to get to the bottom of this. I want you to call Richard, and me, you, Richard, and your father are going to sit down and talk about this. She was like, I want him here tomorrow night at eight o'clock. She said, I don't care what he's doing. I want him here. I believe my mom wanted just to get Richard in a room with my father and have Richard break down and say he was so sorry for ever starting this horrible rumor and that it would be all over. So I called Richard, and Richard was like, I will come over. Absolutely. And I understand you telling your mom, and and I will be there for you. Richard was my best friend. I remember coming downstairs that night. I heard my father say to my mother, are you trying to accuse me of having sex with other women? And my mom looked at him and said, no. I hear you're having sex with other men. And my father's face turned bright red. And for a moment, he was at a loss for words. And that, in that split second, is when my mom started to believe. Because we had watched the devil lie his way out of a hundred different things. He could lie at the drop of a hat. And here he was, speechless. When he finally pulled himself together, he turned to my mother and said, Well, who told you that? And she said, Richard, he's, he's actually on his way over to talk about this. And my father got so angry, and he was like, well, he's a fucking liar. And my mom said, I just, I just want to get to the bottom of this. And he said, I can't believe you are taking his word over mine. And she said, I'm, I'm not taking anyone's word. I, I just want to get this all out in the open. And he was like, good. I can't wait for him to get here. She said, he'll be here any minute. The doorbell rang. And I saw fear in my father's face for the first time. I mean, i had never seen it before. That desperation, that caged kind of fear of not knowing where to go or what to do. And he opened the door and Richard came in and sat on the couch. And my father took a long look at him and just stared at him. And then he walked out the door. And my mom started to cry because she knew no matter what she was about to hear, it was true. And Richard sat down and told my mom everything. And Richard first said that he, uh, he was not going to press charges against my father, but he would tell her everything that he knew. And he did. And my mom listened. And when it was all over, my mom turned to me and said, Bobby, what are we going to do? We have that little baby girl upstairs to take care of. We can't afford to move. And I was like, well, I, we'll think of something. The next day I was, I was getting ready for school and, and the devil was waiting for me. Uh, he, I had just come out of the bathroom and ready to go. And, and he was standing by the bathroom door and he, he said, I, I can't believe You're trying to destroy my life over something that happened once. And I walked past him going towards the stairs to go down. And I said, I I believe that happened more than once. And I started walking down the stairs and he screamed, is that what your lying faggot friend said? I made it downstairs and uh, I turned and I said, I believe that lying faggot more than I do you. And I saw him run down the stairs He's screaming, he was so angry. And he stopped on the railing and he turned to me and he said, I want you to know, if this ruins me, I'm gonna fucking kill the both of you. And if you don't think I can do it, you just watch me. He turned and started walking back upstairs. And and I, I started wondering what ruining him meant. I started to get really scared. My, my father has, uh, has guns. He has a twenty two and a thirty three. He only shot them once a month at a firing range, but he cleaned them all the time. They were pristine. And I remember him cleaning his guns one day, and he turned to my mother and I, and he said, you know how easy it would be for me to just load this gun and shoot the both of you? <laughs> Who would miss you? I was terrified of this coming out. But I also knew that my mom and I can't stay in this situation. But we did for two years. It's amazing what you can get used to in that kind of situation. I mean, my mom and I didn't have money to go. My grandparents didn't believe anything we told them, so they wouldn't help us. And there was no place that we knew where we could go and get money. My father made a lot of money. And he kept it hidden and, and and away from my mom. He he hid money all over the house. It was his bingo money. He would find incredible places to hide money just so no one would know that he had it. My mom and I scrounged and scrounged to get up enough money. But for two years, basically, we would be sitting in the living room and we would be talking and and laughing and, and watching something on TV. You would hear the key go into the lock. And the whole entire room changed. It was like the air was sucked out of the room. I would get stomach pains, and I would walk up to my room and hide. He would be home all night sitting in his underwear and his t-shirt on his favorite chair, which he sat in all the time, and just be there. And that presence put a heaviness on that house. I remember how, how hard it was to try and get away from that because that became normal. That normalization made it hard to leave. But I became involved in a work program at school. I started working a a whole lot at a movie theater. I worked like 50, 60 hours a week, because I I would leave school early and go to work. And finally, in my junior year, I felt that we had enough money, and I I found this two-bedroom apartment over this bar called the Akersat Lounge, which had this big neon sign out front blinking, Akersat Lounge, Akersat Lounge. And so one day we got a truck, and we packed everything up, I mean, I mean we, we really took everything uh, except um, except for his chair. Uh, we left him his, uh, his chair. It sat in that empty, empty house. And we moved into this two-bedroom apartment. And I remember thinking, finally, we're away from him, and we can take a breath, and we can be safe for a while. I remember thinking that, you know, my sister, who had a, a great relationship with my father— But that she would be safe also, because I wasn't exactly sure when, but I was like, someday, he's going to turn on her. I mean, he does it to everyone. I I just know it. And I was really worried for her, because I didn't want that to happen. My grandparents and my mom's mother and father uh, did not believe us at all. And because they didn't believe us, they invited my father over to their house in the morning in order to see my sister. Because mom and I were both working, going to school. We had to take Tammy over to my grandparents' place. So we took Tammy over there, we would leave, my father would show up and see my sister. And I was furious, I, 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 I was so angry. I was like, do you not understand what this man is doing? Do you not understand what this man has done? And they were like, you know what? He's never done anything to me, so. I think it's fine. So I was really angry and I decided that one day I was gonna stay. I wanted him to know that I knew this was going on and I didn't approve of it. So he came over, uh, I, I went there, my grandmother like jumped down my throat as soon as I walked in the door. She was just like, all you wanna do is start trouble. Why can't you just leave things alone? And because of you all of this is happening. And I got blamed for everything. I got blamed for them being separated. Everything was my fault because I should just shut up with these crazy rumors that no one really believes. So I stayed, my father came in the door, he was wearing his armored car uniform because he drove the armored car, uh, throwing money into the back of, of armored cars. That uniform like just made him look even stronger and like more powerful than I even knew he was. My sister, like, oh man, she just ran to him. She was like, Daddy! And, and they hugged. And you could see that relationship right there. It was so, I mean, you could see the love she had for him and the love he had for her. And I was just like, you know, someday you're going to see the real him. And I went outside on the porch and I lit a cigarette and I I was sitting there smoking and I, I was starting to get really, really angry at him. I mean, just the charade he was playing with my grandparents and my sister, you know, the, the lies, all of the deception, and my mother's pain, my, my pain. And I started getting angrier than I, I really ever felt before. And, and he came out of the house and I jumped up in my blur. Did you know if it was up to me, you'd never see her? And he turned to me and was like, well, it isn't up to you now, is it? So you should just shut your fucking mouth. And you should tell your faggot friend Richard to do the same. He started walking down the, the steps that led to the walkway, that led to his car. And I said, well, you should know he's a faggot. You fucked him. He stopped just short of his car, and I, I could see his fist clench. And I said, how old was Richard again? Thirteen? And he turned towards me. And I said, better yet, how old was David 11 12 do you even remember i could see him fuming and he was just like i am gonna kick your fucking ass he came charging at me like a bull and then his fist was clenched and cocked and ready to go i closed my eyes and i was like hit me i I wasn't even sure if he heard me (laughs) uh he he just held his fist tense ready to go but he he must have because he didn't strike And I I looked him in the eye and I said, when I was younger, I couldn't do anything about it and everyone was either too scared or too afraid to butt in. But if you hit me now, I'll throw you in jail so fast your head will spin. So please, hit me. I want you to. And then he lowered his fist. He turned, walked over to his car, got in, flipped me the bird... (laughs) And then he drove off. I remember collapsing on the porch. I, I was shaking from head to toe. I, I had never, ever stood up to him like that before. I mean, let alone asked him to hit me. <laughs> oh my God, I was lucky to be alive. <laughs> and and I, I smoked three cigarettes, one right after the other. And, and I, was, I was still shaking. I was still nervous and shaking as I finished the last one. <laughs> but you know, when that, when that fear started to leave, I really started laughing. (laughs) I was like, you know what? I did it. I stood up to the devil. I mean, he seemed like the devil to me. Man, I felt like Rocky. I had won. It was a victory. And then I, I, I think my grandmother was watching because my, my grandmother always used to say, you know, I, I saw your father at this place and I saw your father at that place. I mean, after mom and I had moved out, she would say, well, I saw your dad at the store. I, I saw him here, I saw him there. And she stopped doing that. She stopped bringing him up to me at all. Somehow she saw or heard something that made her realize that maybe what we were saying wasn't wrong. Mom and I were living in our little apartment, and I was I was getting restless. I mean, I was working long hours at the theater, and I had a girlfriend named Michelle, who I was very, very much in love with. We'd dated while, she was in, while we were in high school together, and she was going to college, and I started missing her like crazy, and I was like. I don't think I want to live here for the rest of my life. I don't want to be trapped in this situation. I mean, I love my mom, but I, I want to live my life. I sat my mom down and I said, Mom, I, I, I love you, but I, um, I think I need to be on my own. And she said, Are you, are you sure that's what you want? And I said, Yeah, I, I think it is. I love Michelle and I, I really want to be with her. I want to start my life. And she said, I I understand. I um I, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I, I rely on you for a lot of things, and uh I just don't know what I'm gonna do. And I said, Well, you know, whatever you need. I mean, I I'm I I wanna help you and, and and I'm here for you. You just let me know what you need. But I I think I really need to be on my own. And then we didn't talk about it anymore. You know, I mean, she understood my position and, and how what I needed. And and I wanted to help her with hers. I just didn't know what to do. And then one day a, a knock came on the door and I answered it. And there he was, dressed in a suit. My father. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not here to see you. I'm taking your mother out to dinner. And I was like, no way. How could this be happening? I mean, what is this even doing back in my life? As I'm thinking that, my mom came out of the bathroom. She was dressed to go out. I mean, she was wearing a gray sweater, black slacks. Her hair was perfect. And she said, we'll talk about this when I get home. And she left with him. And I I felt so much guilt. I, I like collapsed on the floor. And when she came home, I said, what are you doing? And she said, he's different now. He's changed. And then she said, I cannot make it on my own. What am I supposed to do, Bobby? You are my anchor. This just seems like the right thing and the only thing I can do. And then she looked at me with these big, hopeful eyes. And she said, he really does want to change. And then I... I moved out. I moved to Lancaster with Michelle. My mom and sister uh, did finally leave my father uh, after Tammy started dating. When that happened, my father turned on her and he started smacking her in the back of the head and he started calling her a whore and saying she would just end up pregnant and be nothing. It is then that my sister actually saw the real him and, uh, and understood kind of what I had gone through all of those years and, and, and she was like, she said to my mom, we, we can't be here anymore. I started living in New York and I never even thought about him again until I got that phone call that he had died. And it was really weird because after getting that phone call and, and, and after feeling, again, nothing about him passing away, I started to think about some of the things that happened that I didn't realize were happening. I mean, what, what happened to Richard and David was jaw-dropping to me, but I didn't realize what was happening to me while I was living there with him. I remember once I was taking a shower and I was listening to Beatles music, and I was rocking out in the shower, and I turned and saw a pair of eyes staring at me from over the shower railing. The shower door didn't come all the way to the ceiling. These eyes looked at me from over the shower railing, and I remember jumping and being startled and freaked out, and it was my father, and he was watching me shower. And I remember turning away from him and kind of totally freaking out and trying to bury myself into the tile wall, and he was like, I'm just watching to uh, make sure you're not doing anything in there you shouldn't be doing. I was about seven or eight. I had no idea what he was talking about, but him staring at me was terrifying, and I don't remember why it was terrifying. It's my father, but him staring at me over the railing petrified me, and I, I remember being totally freaked out by it. And then I, uh, I was reading this magazine about bedwetting, people talking about what it was like when they wet the bed and stuff. And I, I remember, I remember thinking, oh my god, I remember just how wet those sheets were. I was like a flood over the sheets. And I remember reading that story, and I was like, yeah, I remember that. And then I, I was like, oh, if the sheets were that wet, then why did my father touch me and put his hand underneath me? and grab my genitals in order to see if I was wet. And that was the way that my brain processed it that this is not my father touching my genitals. This is my father checking to see if I'm wet. That was what he was doing. And I was like, "Oh. Uh, so that happened to me." And all of these pieces, all of these little things started to come back, but only after I found out he was dead and after I started processing everything and started writing about it, did all of this stuff start to come back. And I started to learn about my sexual abuse and what happened to me. I've really forgiven my father a lot for the things that he did to me. I'm still processing the sexual abuse stuff. I'm still getting over that because I'm still remembering things that happened. I was able to let a lot of the abuse and stuff like that go and being able to forgive him for that. But the stuff that he did to the people that I love, that's the stuff I find the hardest to forgive because you just don't hurt the people I love, not around me. I am very protective of my family and the people who are close to me, but I have forgiven him for the stuff he did to me. And that has helped me a lot with the anger issues that I had when I was growing up because I was pretty self-abusive for a long period of time. And it took a lot for me to get over that. I thought that once I left him, I would be fine and that none of this would ever back up on me again. And I was so wrong uh, because it does. And it took me a lot of therapy and a a lot of getting to like myself. I really didn't like myself for the longest time. And I'm finally starting to like myself.
2: Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles of a graveyard, and it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's gonna fall.
0: is all for this week's episode of risk my friends this is edie brickell and new bohemians behind me now covering bob dylan and we just heard from bob brader again i cannot recommend enough that you go see bob do the live show version a longer more extended version of that story look him up at bobbrader.com he's also coming out with a memoir So look for the book version, too. He is just extraordinary, and there's a lot more to the story. So look Bob up at BobBrader.com. Bob also wanted us to mention that Safe Horizon is the nation's leading victim assistance organization for victims of crime and abuse and their loved ones. They're at SafeHorizon.org or 1-800-621-HOPE. Now... The most unexpected thing happened to us this morning, and that is we got an email from our publishers at Hachette Publishing saying, You know what? We are just so in love with the Risk book. We want to offer you guys to do a new book ASAP, regardless. Regardless of how this one goes, I've never heard of that in any industry before. But anyway, it was hilarious because JC wrote back, well, sure, let's explore that possibility, but please, 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 can we take at least several months off first because we don't want to continue, you know, annoying our fans by never endlessly begging them to pre-order box. But that begging will not stop today, folks. Today, I'm going to tell you, for God's sake, we're at a thousand. We need a thousand more in the next 15 days. Go to the riskbook.com or text to the number 900 900 the word risk. Enter into the pre ordering process. You can get the paperback or the audiobook or the ebook. You can get it from wherever you want Amazon, wherever you want. Just go get the goddamn book and have lots of friends do it too. Okay, now I'm going to let you know where Risk is coming next. We're coming to a lot of places doing both shows and book reading, book signings. Okay, here we go. On July 17th, that is the day that the Risk book is released, and our big book release party is happening at Caveat in New York City on July 17th. Now, several people who are in the book will be reading that night. A.J. Jacobs from Esquire Magazine will be there. Michelle Carlo, oh my God, her story in the book always makes me cry. Max, uh, (laughs) he just goes by Max, has the most amazing story in the book. Uh, Melina Williams-Hawes, everyone's favorite, is going to be there so Fabulous show at caveat on July 17th. That is the big book release party. Okay. July 19th. We're in Boston in Cambridge at the Harvard bookstore. That is our first book reading book signing event. That's July 19th at the Harvard bookstore in Cambridge. And then on July 20th, we're in Somerville near Boston. Arts at the Armory. That is going to be a big risk show. Oh my gosh. The stories for that show are phenomenal folks. So July 20th, come on out Boston to Arts at the Armory. And then July 26th is a book signing, book reading in San Francisco at book passage. Uh, that's a bookstore in San Francisco. That's July twenty-six, And then on July 27th, We'll be doing a San Francisco Risk Show. Uh, We're still taking pitches for that, actually. The uh, themes that night are What Was I Thinking or Spiritual or Under the Influence. July 27th in San Francisco, California at the Swedish American Hall on July 28th. We are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. It will be the first time ever that the Los Angeles Risk Show is hosted by me, Kevin Allison. And storytellers who have stories in the book are going to be there that night. Ray Christian is going to be there in Los Angeles with us on July 28th. Jonah Ray will be there. J.C. Cassis has an amazing story in the book. She'll be there. Uh, we're asking Mark Maron to be there. Anyway, it's July 28th at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On August 1st, we're in Queens, New York at the Astoria Bookstore doing a book signing and book reading. On August 3rd, we're in Detroit. We're in Ferndale, Michigan at the Magic Bag again. We love doing shows in Detroit. So that's August 3rd. At the Magic Bag. On August 9th, we're in LaGrange, Illinois at Anderson's Bookshop. That's a book signing, book reading at uh, Anderson's Bookshop in LaGrange, Illinois on August 9th. On August 10th, we're in Chicago, Illinois at Lincoln Hall doing a risk show. The themes that night are vulnerable or mean or cover-ups. So pitch us for that show, folks. On August 11th, We're in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Brave New Workshop. We're still taking pitches for that one. The themes are Obsession or Dirty or Metamorphosis. August 11th in Minneapolis. On August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. August 16th in D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That's a book reading, book signing. On August 17th, we're in Baltimore, uh, that is a risk show. August 17th in Baltimore, the themes are rabbit holes or me against nature or pride. Pitches for that, folks, in Baltimore. August 18th, we're in Washington, D.C. doing a risk show at the Black Cat. The themes that night are power or barbaric or opposites. So pitch us for that, August 18th in Washington, D.C., August 18th, we're also back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. On September 6th, we are in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. The themes that night are At My Worst or Lies or Ecstasy, so pitches for that Portland. On September 7th, we're in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. The themes that night are The Worst or Glorious or Breakdown, so pitches for that Seattle. On September 8th, we're in Vancouver. The themes that night are spectacle or the rules or full volume. Pitches for that on September 20th, we're at NYU Bookstore in New York doing a book signing and book reading on September 20th at NYU Bookstore. That is all I have to say. Be sure to check us out also if you're interested in storytelling education. We have our site at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. And it's- At the bar people who have at the bar there's Portia Hunt and Corey Haberston. there's Lionel Rudency. there's Vincent Philip Pando pronounced with the L's making an L sound not a Y sound um there's Xander Shanahan and Paige Friscoll there's Maurice and Amy Beaton. There's Reverend Aaron A. Pierce. There's Alex Catino and Jeff Barr. There's Clarissa Bueno and Alexandria Phillips. There's Lane Rodriguez and Margaret Putnam. There's no men. No mean. Ooh, gee. Yeah, there's no Mimu mm, mm, yeah, there's Jennifer Gleck. There's Jeff Barragan, there's Rico Putinin. There's Cindy Potter, there's Ryan Anderson. There's Anna Shone, and happy birthday to Sarah in Sweden from Anna. There's Zach Anderson and Amy Squaboda. There's Allison and Kirby Landis. Happy birthday, Charlie Foster, Antonio Gardner, Jake Parker, Michael Frantis, Lisa and Mark Stephens. There's Dominique Lagrange, which rhymes with strange. There's Amy Mislick, and that's it.